This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Robert Kopp from The Economist on the Government of China's Belt and Road Initiative. We discuss the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative to the Asian economies and the trade and financial risks that potentially impact China's most important plan since the Marshall Plan after World War II. Hi, Rob. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. Where are you based now? I'm based in Hong Kong. And I'm talking to Robert Kept, Director, The Economist Corporate Network. And this is going to be a very interesting conversation because I messaged Robert after he has shared something with regards to a very important initiative that a lot of people in the Western media don't really cover, which is the Belt and Road. But before that, I want to get to know Rob better. So Rob, how do you start your career? So I began, well, first of all, it's worth maybe pointing out, I have a background in Chinese and Japanese languages and literature. So something that isn't, I guess, a typical business training But I realized if I really wanted to understand Asia, I needed to work in the real world. And it made sense at the time. This was the early 90s to join a Japanese trading company, in particular because they were one of the only ones employing people during the midst of a post-Gulf War number one recession in the United States. So I started working with Japanese trading companies that also brought me to Singapore for a number of years. And then after that, branched out into various areas, but uh, particularly did a lot of work with economic and business research and kind of launched my career to get me where I am now. So in your career journey, what are the interesting career lessons learned then? Well, I think one of the things that came out as I did my first book, which looked at creativity and, and technological innovation, I, I specifically looked at what made Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, and tried to see where else can we find it in the world. So spent some time in Cambridge, England. And Anyway, in, in making this comparison and then doing subsequent research, I got some sponsorship from the World Bank to do some things in China that also looked at that. Uh, what I was very struck by is the idea that there's no such thing as a problem or a failure in the traditional sense. Anything that occurs in life is an opportunity if you want to make it one. So I think that was the biggest lesson I learned in the progress of my career and have been trying to apply it to life. I don't always do it as well as I, the research indicates I should, but uh, it was one of the most profound observations that, that came out when I was looking at things. Yes, we are both alumni of the Cambridge University. I've actually spent seven years there and probably that's where we met too. So you have written an interesting book, Betting on China, which provides an interesting analysis on China-based enterprises raising capital from NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and their evolution in handling investors outside of China. I guess what I'm, I've been starting to read the book and I actually got very engrossed into trying to understand the dynamics of that. I would like to actually ask you, what is the key thesis of the book and who the intended audience is? Right. So the key thesis, and this was during a time when there was a lot of controversy around Chinese stock issuances in the United States. So to put it somewhat in context, so the book came out just about five years ago. I still like to think it's relevant. So I'm always happy to hear when someone's reading it. I think it has a lot to say about what's going on in China, in the business world, in the financial world, and, and around uh, the global economy with, with China's involvement in that. So that, that in a nutshell is what the book is about, looking at those dynamics. But what it was specifically interested in is how, in fact, 
these very epitomes of Western capitalism, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, were transforming Chinese businesses. And this was right at the height. So it came out in 2012, which was right after there was this huge run-up in uh, Chinese stocks that had listed in the United States, and then this huge short attack wave that, that basically descended on them. And you had uh, famous companies that actually listed in Toronto, but nevertheless, uh, an example of this phenomena of listing abroad in a Western capital market, Sino Forest. And it, it, uh, it ended up being a $5 billion stock scandal. And there were some real issues with some of these companies that went abroad, but there were a lot of companies that were massively successful. I mean, Alibaba today is probably the best known one. But in my research, I talk a lot about, for example, China Mobile, which was issued during the midst of the Asia financial crisis. It's really interesting to see how the Western capitalist system, in particular equity markets, have played a really transformative role in China's evolution, although there's a lack of recognition, I think, within China and outside of China. So that's the intended audience, really, was uh, people around the world to better understand China and to also try to change some thinking in China about how it can better engage with the Western capitalist system. Do you think that in this day and age where, for example, you mentioned Alibaba Group and also Tencent, they have actually learned from their predecessors who have listed in these American stock exchanges and they actually are better at how they handle the investors as compared earlier? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, it's a, an excellent question, actually. And they do seem to, to have a better understanding. I you know, I think figure like Jack Ma, there's still a lot of controversy surrounding him. We at the Economist Corporate Network just had a C-suite roundtable lunch, which we put on from time to time. And we had luxury brands in Hong Kong and fashion brands represented there. And of course, you know, you mentioned Alibaba and the whole, you know, mood goes dark because it's still a place that's well known for having fakes. And, and Alibaba has had lawsuits. It continues to have problems with these brands because it has yet to really do an effective job of controlling quality on the market. And it, it, it's thus alienated a huge part of the Western capitalist world that takes pride and in fact only survives because of intellectual property rights, which aren't really well regarded in Alibaba. However, turning that question around like you originally asked and, and thinking about how is a company like Alibaba better communicating with its investors and customers, maybe more generally? And yes, I think they're, they're a far cry from what we saw in the early days of the Chinese stock issuances and certainly in the times of problems where there were companies not always actually acting wrongfully, but giving the appearance of doing so and not communicating well with investors. We saw a lot of that five years ago. We don't see that as much uh, today, there still are, still are the occasional stock scandals but uh, with the Chinese issuers, but that occurs anywhere. And maybe there's a slightly higher proportion out of China. But anyway, I, I would say definitely there is a improve, there is a noticeable improvement in the communication techniques that we see with particularly the bigger companies. Just one question before we come into the main subject of the day. What is your role and coverage in The Economist Corporate Network? Because The Economist is one of my favorite magazines and I read it as religiously from week to week. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. We, we always are. I think our writers would be even more pleased. I should hasten to add, I'm on the, I am part of the editorial side of the group, but, but we operate in different divisions. So we have what's very well known to the outside world, what you read every week, what in today's form is a magazine, but internally we still call a newspaper because it was founded in 1843. So it, it has this pedigree and, and that's what we're best known for, of course. But then we have other divisions such as the Economist Intelligence Unit, where actually my business unit is attached. So the Economist Intelligence Unit does 
economic and political and a number of industry sector research on a subscription basis and sometimes on a bespoke basis for consulting projects and so forth. And then we also have a division, which is the Economist Corporate Network, where I'm attached. I'm the director in Hong Kong. Uh, we also have operations in Singapore, Tokyo, Beijing, Shanghai, and then uh, satellite offices in Kuala Lumpur and Seoul. So we have a pretty good presence in Asia. And we put on events for executives, everything from what I mentioned. We had yesterday a C-suite roundtable to larger forum type events. These are typically breakfast in the case of forums and the roundtables are, are more likely lunches, but we sometimes mix around the timing as well. Anyway, they're designed to occur in the midst of a busy business day where you can come in, get a lot of really great insight into relevant topics with the world of business and economics and politics. And so that's what we're about. We, we do those events throughout the year, and we also will put out white papers and do research as well within the context of our interface with the corporate world as representing the economist group. So which comes to the main subject of the day, and it's a subject that I have been really looking for someone to talk to about it, which is the One Belt, One Road initiative by the Chinese government. And in some parts of the world, they call it Belt and Road. I think this is pretty interesting initiative from the Chinese government because it also involves the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and everything that's alternative to the similar institutions to the Western world. So I want to start off by my first question is, can you give an introduction to the Belt and Road initiative by the Chinese government? Sure. Well, th this is... I think the easiest way to describe it is as a revival of the ancient Silk Road on Chinese terms. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a pejorative statement unless you want to interpret it that way. But I, I think that summarizes what it's really about. Now, if we look at it in terms of its origins and then what it means in terms of a geographic footprint. So it began with some speeches that President Xi Jinping gave four years ago in the fall of 2013 actually beginning in Central Asia, where he talked about this economic belt across Central Asia out to Europe. And then they decided to add to that a maritime Silk Road. So it's kind of confusing in that the maritime or, or ocean part is, is the road and the belt is actually what, what covers the land. But you can think of all these trade routes that, that China has established overland and, and over oceans. And it's those trade routes and then the countries that they touch upon, that's what the Belt Road is about, is building up that trade infrastructure. So that naturally implies constructing lots of transportation networks. China tends to really favor rail and not just rail, but especially high speed rail. That's an area where they have some advantage and they see a lot of the future and it has you know, a higher value add. So they've really been promoting high speed rail projects, but they've also been doing a lot with port development work, for example, in Asia. They're very involved in Sri Lanka with the Port of Colombo project, which isn't just a port, by the way. It also includes massive commercial and, and industrial and other uh, development components. And then they're doing other things with, in some cases, telecommunications and so forth. But it, it's really all about infrastructure, and it's about having China lead the way for future trade growth. That, that's what it boils down to. So geographically, where are the economic corridors that the initiative is actually expanding from China to the outside world? You talk about the, the road from China to Europe and also a maritime road. So they have, they have a couple of these terms. So there's the New Eurasia Land Bridge Economic Corridor. There's the China Central Asia, West Asia Economic Corridor. Uh, the one that touches on, well, Singapore has some branches of like the, the China Central Asia 
corridor because it then goes down through Vietnam and Laos and down the peninsula there in Thailand all the way to Singapore. Then it has the, you know, the maritime routes that go out to Africa and so forth. So its structure is basically, if you look at it on a map, it's kind of these lines of trading that extend from China westward and southward, right? So they're going back towards Asia, out towards Africa and down towards Southeast Asia and South Asia. That That's in a nutshell uh, what the connectors are about. But it, it really has expanded beyond that. And originally there were uh, 65 countries talked about as part of Belt Road, but it's it's gone far beyond that. For example, in the recent, what they called a Belt Road Forum in May in Beijing, China made a big point to invite other countries like the United States. In fact, it's specifically that was part of the trade, the uh, summit discussion between Trump and Xi in Mar-a-Lago in the United States in April. So the presidents of the United States and China sat down and, and part of the ne ne negotiating that went on was for Trump to agree to send a delegation to the Belt Road Forum in May of this year, which you know was interesting for lots of reasons that if you'd like to know more about, I'm happy to go into. But I'll say that it's just an illustration of how even though the United States was never considered part of Belt Road, China is really trying to make this all-encompassing. And so they're, they're involving countries like that. They also had North Korea, uh, of all places, uh, which has never been part of the Belt Road strategy or, or can really legally be part of anyone's trade strategy, according to UN regulations. But anyway, they uh, had them invited as well, and they also attended. So it, it just shows that it, I think the, the best way to think of Belt Road is China intends it for the whole world, but it specifically targets these developing world countries west of China and, and south of China. A lot of media outlets likened the Belt and Road Initiative similar to the U.S. Marshall Plan after World War II. And I understand you have actually an analyzed Belt and Road against foreign aid and Marshall Plan. What are the similarities and differences between them? Well, it's a good question because you're right. It often gets compared and it's an erroneous comparison for a number of reasons. It's not uh, out of context in the sense that China wants to use Belt Road with the same sort of impact that the Marshall Plan had. And it, that's what concerns policymakers, I think not only in the West, but also countries that have, shall we say, more of a Western leaning or more of a modernized economic structure like Singapore. They've also you know, voiced some concern about what is going on behind the Belt Road Initiative. But you know, in the case of the Marshall Plan, in any case, when this was uh, unveiled uh, some 70 years ago, 1948, this was for recovery in a devastated Western Europe as a bulwark against the encroachment of communism, which is somewhat ironic given that Belt Road is about helping China, a communist nation, at least in name, further uh, exert its influence across the world. So Marshall Plan was at uh, odds with, with what Belt Road is about in that sense, but it was also aid, flat out aid, meaning money given to the country, some $12 billion then about $120 billion in today's money, and it was to specifically rebuild countries. Now, Belt Road, it has also got this build-up component. It's not going into war-torn areas, really, to help build up the economies there, but really just take these economies that have not been as well integrated in the uh, global trading system as they could be and, and help let them rise and, and become more active participants. But it's done in the form of loans. That's what's critical here, and that's the key issue also with Belt Road is that it isn't this really benevolent outreach by China to say, I'm going to give money to these countries to help them rise to the next level of economic development, saying, here's a loan and here are the terms. 
which are often generous, but they always include Chinese technology and Chinese workers and a lot of Chinese material like steel. <laughs> so there's a very valid argument to say it's just a, a way for China to export its overcapacity, uh, including its labor market at, at the expense of local labor markets and local industries. So that's the controversy. And, and the, the bigger risk is that those loans won't get repaid necessarily, if the countries don't have a great return on the investment that allows them to pay back the, the principal plus interest. You, you have mentioned that China has launched the Belt and Road Forums in May and also indicated the number of countries that are involved in the initiative. But what is the amount of money pledged? And I, I thought you, you might want to elaborate a little bit more about why China wanted the United States to be involved in the Belt and Road Forum then. Sure. So, well, there's not a, an official price tag on the Belt Road. President Xi Jinping at the May Forum pledged an additional about 800 billion renminbi uh, on the order of about 120 billion U.S. dollars in, in additional funding for Belt Road or One Belt, One Road, OBER, as we sometimes use the acronym, projects. So that's what the new money that has been pledged. You know, leading accountancies have hazarded some guesses at what the numbers are involved are PwC, for example, estimates the total required infrastructure investment to be on the order of $5 trillion. So it really shows it's no small piece of change uh, to roll out all these projects. Then to answer your question about why it was important to get the U.S. to attend is that for the reasons I was just mentioning with that contextual analysis of how Belt Road compares to the Marshall Plan, a number of countries see Belt Road in very political terms, just like they see the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, of which notably the U.S. is not a participant. In the case of Belt Road, China was really eager to get a number of key countries to show up. One was the United States, another was India. There were also a number of Middle Eastern countries and Eastern European countries that wanted to have attend, and it didn't do so well in that regard. It did get the U.S., the U.S. sending a delegation was a big coup for China in uh, the diplomatic sense, showing that the U.S. was conferring a kind of blessing to the One Belt, One Road projects. At the same time, with uh, India not showing up, Bangladesh not showing up, Thailand not showing up, along with the key Eastern European economies it's targeting, that was a bit of a setback because those are very critical for Belt Road to be as successful as China wants it to be. One key point is the economics of Belt and Road Initiative. What is the impact on China with respect to its trade with the Belt and Road countries? Is the outlook optimistic? And what are the mercantilist strategic implications to China and also to the other countries that are involved in it? Right. So it's a, another one of those very uh, pointed questions, and it's something that a lot of people have failed to look at. This is one of the things that is nice to be working with a group that does research on this. So our team at Division within the Economist Intelligence Unit called Access China actually ran the numbers looking at China's trade with Belt Road countries. And, and what's interesting is that while there has been this growing trade, so since 2013, we've seen about a 25% increase in trade with Belt Road countries in, in China. So, so in that sense, it's good. It shows Belt Road it seems to be having an impact on trade. You can't argue that. But the, the less reassuring statistic to come out of this is that the value of goods imported from the Belt Road countries into China actually has declined. So it means it's been helping Chinese exports more than imports from these countries, which to have truly win-win, mutually beneficial trade, it should be more balanced, right? Now, there are some further items to consider here. One is 
as China is investing with uh, capital, even in the form of loans, it's nevertheless committing you know, the equipment and, and the material and the personnel and so forth. And, and all that is going over uh, to the Belt Road countries. You would expect an increase in China's exports. And also a lot of the Belt Road countries, the commodity prices have been downward swing. So their values would be expected to depreciate even though they're not actually maybe trading less by volume. So anyway, that, that that's some background. But then to your point about the mercantilistic implications for this, it's that, well, just as those statistics indicate, if those trends continue, if along the Belt Road, instead of just this being part of the startup phase, but indeed over time, China is exporting more, importing less, that's a perfect mercantilistic strategy where it says, I open your market or I sell to your market, but I don't allow you access to mine. And that is exactly the issue China is facing now is it touts in its speeches and in very, you know, often defensive remarks about initiatives taken by the United States and in EU and so forth against Chinese imports to say, well, we shouldn't be protectionistic. We, we should all be supporting global trade. And yet China itself remains closed in many key sectors. So that that's the negative implication here. China, to make Belt Road truly win-win, is going to have to open up its markets, just as it's going to need to, frankly, with these or developed economies like the U.S. and EU and, and others in Asia in order to truly be considered a genuine champion of global trade. So how does the Belt and Road affect China's foreign direct investment and their own economy in the next few years? Because this is a very significant amount of expenditure that they need to loan it out to all the countries to build the infrastructure, to build the connectivity. But of course, you know, China itself is also in the midst of transforming itself, modernizing itself. Do you see that there will be some conflict coming in that kind of scenario? Another interesting question. Well, in terms of the FDI, which is often called ODI or Overseas Direct Investment, because we think of FDI as stuff that goes into China traditionally. And so when we start thinking of China investing abroad, we often call it ODI. But when, when you look at the outflows, and, this, and it's also perhaps worth emphasizing that there's a distinction between these loan packages that China gives and then the direct investment, which would be when companies are actually going in, setting up factories, committing their capital, that, that's what's meant by direct investment. And in the case of actually committed capital, it's quite interesting because the majority of that money is flowing to ASEAN and a large part of even the money within ASEAN going to Singapore <laughs> because it just shows how despite the talk of we're here to support the developing world and so forth, when it's actually a matter of committing your own capital, Chinese companies are putting it in a place they know. Uh, mainly the ASEAN territories, and a place that's safe, mainly Singapore. So it's another dimension to all this. In terms of what that could mean for China's own industries, yeah, there's definitely a chance that it could be like you saw with Taiwan, because of course, I, and I will, you know, to be politically correct for the legal classifications of those areas, there's mainland China, there's Taiwan, and the two actually, regardless of one's politics, they're, they're very reflective historically and in terms of economic structure dating back several decades. And in Taiwan, you did see huge deindustrialization as the Taiwanese companies basically went to mainland China and Southeast Asia for their factories. And uh, the Taiwanese economy has been in a bit of a doldrums for, for a number of years for, for that and other reasons. But uh, that's part of the story. Japan as well. So will China face a deindustrialization? 
and meet the same fate that we've seen in maturing Asian economies that don't really go to the next level and become more open and, and integrated in the global system like Japan, like Taiwan, it's definitely a possibility. It, China has one advantage in that it has a vast hinterland area that hasn't been fully developed yet. So unlike the case of Japan or Taiwan, where they really tapped out their ability to grow and industrialize uh, physically, uh, China still has that opportunity. So even if it exports its work capacity, takes out some of its industries to other countries, it would still have room to grow internally. That's one thing. And the other thing is we don't really see a lot of the value-added industries moving out with Belt Road. It's more, again, infrastructure, basic physical buildup that's occurring. So everything from the roads, the buildings, to the ports and so forth, as opposed to, you know, advanced manufacturing facilities. Which also concurs because they in their five-year plan, they have the so-called the concept of Industry 4.0 concept where they still want to have the competitive advantage of having manufacturing still within China itself. And that speaks a lot about the Shenzhen hardware uh, ecosystem. So what are the trade risks for China with respect to Belt Road then? So the, the biggest risks basically come down to operational risks in terms of setting up these projects, getting them going. Notably in, I could say, three countries, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Hungary, they faced setbacks that they weren't anticipating. So uh, in Thailand, actually, there's a there's a quasi, I guess you could call it a quasi Belt Road project. China originally tried to build this high-speed rail in Thailand, where it would be Chinese loans, Chinese contractors, and they would get, as they expect in these loan programs, concessions like land. <laughs> and the Thai government was not happy with that. And so they rejected the financing. And Thailand is fortunately an advanced enough economy that it could fund the high-speed rail project itself. It said, so we'll fund it, you'll be contractors. But the progress of that project has been bogged down because Thailand is insisting on technology transfer, which is interesting because China has always insisted on technology transfer when companies invest in its country, but it has not been willing to provide technology transfer to Thailand. So it has bogged down there. And I could go on with the other cases too, but it's similarly where China has gone into a project and you know documents have been signed and a lot of fanfare and money has been maybe even exchanged. In fact, in Sri Lanka, there was actually the case of uh, this Port of Colombo project being approved and there was a change in government and it was not approved and China ended up losing a lot of money because it had committed already to pre-development of the project. So anyway, there are all these sorts of risks in terms of implementing the projects. Then there's a whole other dimension of risk financially in terms of loan repayment, like I mentioned earlier, where well, you're giving out loans. And, and I should, by the way, to China's credit, it does tend to give these with low interest rates, very long grace periods. And that, that does make it easier for these countries, of course, to repay. But also when you do that, just like we saw with subprime mortgages in the global financial crisis that began in the United States, well, if you're giving it on very generous terms to people or countries in this case that don't have the ability to repay, you're still facing huge financial risk down the road. And that could indeed be the case with Belt Road projects. So one thing I'm not very clear about is which are the financial institutions that are actually dedicated in providing the funds for Belt and Road? Right. So there, it's interesting because the assumption is typically that it would be the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, whose name right out implies that it should be taking the lead on this, or the New Development Bank, sometimes called the BRICS Banks, which China recently established. 
But those are very new and they're also multilateral, not only in their investment portfolio, but also in the way they're constituted. So China can't just tell these banks go and loan this money. So it's turned out that instead we've seen a lot of funding from China Development Bank and also the China Export-Import Bank and other state-owned banks. And there's even the case of state-owned enterprises. A lot of these massive construction and development companies have a financing on their own. For example, you have organization like China, organizations like China Railway International, and it has its own funding ability. So it will come in and also underwrite a lot of these projects. So which are the most important major projects within the Barren Road? For example, I, I know you mentioned the Indonesia-Jakarta-Bandung High-Speed Railway. Are there any other projects that of that kind of magnitude that the Chinese government is really zeroing their attention on? Yeah, well, one is, like I mentioned, the one in Thailand, which unfortunately has not gone as well as they were hoping. I should say, by the way, I would consider the Thai high-speed rail project one of the better ones because it, it makes a lot of economic sense. Thailand could definitely benefit from high-speed rail. It's bordering with China and so forth. So it, despite its setbacks, it probably has a better prospects going forward. But the other ones that China has really emphasized are include one that I would say doesn't have as much economic rationale. And that's what's known as the China-Laos Railway which is a high-speed railway connecting Vientiane with Kunming in China. You know, it doesn't make a lot of economic sense to have a project that takes out a, I mean, represents a sizable portion of the Laotian entire nation's GDP, where people are still subsistence farmers in many ways, or many of the people, I should say, are subsistence farmers or engaged in that sort of very basic level of economic existence. And you're bringing in very sophisticated high-speed railway systems. There's this Hungarian-Serbian railway I mentioned, the port of Piraeus, which China has already been doing in Greece, and, and that has actually been going more successfully. Anyway, those are the sort of very highly strategic projects amongst these many, many projects across the world that China has particularly emphasized because of their potential to further, well, you could look at it different ways, but it's basically to get China's economic agenda further achieved in those areas of the world. So where do you see the financial risk for Baron Road come from then? Will it be from their own banks or more of just the projects not meeting its timeline or getting the desired outcome that they want? Well, really a combination of all that, right? So the, the bank loans themselves, I think they're, they're looking at a potential huge bad loan portfolio emerging. Again, even acknowledging a, lonely, a number of these projects have great potential. I don't think there's you know, any question that all these countries, any, look, any country can develop, can benefit from infrastructure. And if there's one country that shows how much infrastructure has made a decisive difference in its economic development, it would be a place like Singapore. We were talking about at the beginning, the Marshall Plan, how that fundamentally did help transform Western Europe and so forth. The United States currently lacks advanced infrastructure. It's been very negligent in maintaining its infrastructure. So even well-developed economies can miss you know, the importance of infrastructure. And what China is doing in trying to build up infrastructure across the world, I think is commendable. But yeah, it's everything from when you go into these countries and you provide these big infrastructure projects without really looking through how they're going to repay the loan. So right there, there's a negative impact on the financial health of China's banking system, which is very interconnected and very much controlled by the state. And because the state has been pushing these projects that could all go back to the entire Chinese financial system, that's a huge risk. It's what you were talking about there in terms of the operational risk. These Projects could be set back by all sorts of delays. Corruption is another issue. Security is a huge issue. China's been running into conflict situations in Pakistan and with India, 
uh, along the, they all relate, but it's uh, with the border that these countries share that is particularly volatile, the borders, I should say, because it's at multiple points. But anyway, there's a whole range of issues there that could come up to, to really make it difficult for China to re- receive the returns it's hoping for. Which comes to this question, right? Where are the geopolitical risks in the Baron Road from China's perspective? Like, for example, India is not part of the Baron Road Initiative at the moment. Well, actually, it, it is targeted uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative, but you're right, it is not really joining in. So I, I think this is where it shows the, the issue. China wants it to be a totally part of Belt Road, but uh, China, I mean, India is not uh, rising to the occasion. Would you foresee India actually create its own Belt Road if its economy finally managed to rival that of China at some point? Right. So India is actually trying that. I forget the exact uh, phrases of the initiatives, but it has a number of similar programs it's undertaken with regard to South Asia, so its neighboring countries, where it particularly wants to remain the dominant power, as well as more Asia-wide initiatives. The, the issue is exactly what you referred to there is that it doesn't have nearly the economic might of China. You know, China's economy is on the order of $12 trillion and and growing at a rate uh, that is still very fast. It'll be close to 7% this year. And even though we see it dropping to below 6% next year, that's still very fast growth. India has great growth right now at 7% and above, but it's coming off of a $2.3 trillion economy. So just on that basis, you can see that there's a huge disparity. And, And moreover, India has to first start developing itself more. In fact, if there's one area where it really could benefit from its infrastructure, that, that's one of the bigger weaknesses of India's economy. It seems to be addressing that. But unlike China, it hasn't really developed to the state where China has and that China can say, look, although I'm not completely built out, it, it's pretty well built out for the size and, and state of development that its economy has. There aren't a lot of more high-speed rails or advanced ports that China can build. It can expand on the ones it has, but it's not talking about new massive infrastructure projects for China, at least nothing that could be sustainable or, or bring back the returns they've, received, they've, they've seen on the projects they've done, whereas India really could benefit from that. So I think the, the key thing for India would be is to copy the China model to some degree, at least in terms of infrastructure hastening economic development. And then when it becomes more developed, it itself could be like China and then go abroad and and help build up other countries. It's ironic because in the tech startup ecosystem, a lot of the India startup unicorns with companies with valuation greater than one billion are all funded by China money. Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. And it will probably remain an interesting dimension of how this plays out. I, I like to think I'm not a technotopian, as it were, who believes that you know technology can solve all mankind's ills. But that could be an example where India and China really could cooperate better and f- find a way to get along that we don't see from the Belt Road initiatives, because tech is at another dimension of infrastructure. So whether it's you know, these OTT platforms or or doing things with apps or simply the, the, the general e-commerce, m-commerce areas. This is an area where it seems Indian entrepreneurs are very happy to receive Chinese investment and the, the two could probably learn a lot from each other and benefit. That's where the technology transfer would come from, I guess. <laughs> That's a good point. That is a good point. And it, it's more possible to do in those cases because an app is not as deemed as sensitive as, say, high-speed rail or port control systems and so forth. So, yeah. So, my 
penultimate question to close this part of the conversation. Where do you see the Barrett Road Initiative go in the next one, two years? Another good question and one that's not easy to answer because it's dependent on a lot of factors. For example, the sort of setbacks China has been experiencing, such as in Hungary, where the EU has come in and said, hey, you know, this high-speed rail that you're building with uh, the Hungarian government's enthusiastic endorsement is actually in violation of EU policy. And that feeds into a whole building tension between EU and the China over market access and, and how to conduct truly fair trade. So that could be the sort of thing that could really put a serious impediment to the role of Belt Road. Plus, like we were talking about the financial risk, other operational risks, a lot of issues there. At the same time, as I mentioned, it's hard to deny that infrastructure isn't good for an economy and its development. And even with the strategic and geopolitical motives that are behind these projects and cause concern from a lot of particularly Western governments, even if you control a port it, to a degree, I mean, commercially, it doesn't mean you truly control a country. It doesn't mean a country can just nationalize the port if you, you know, step out of line. So I think that sometimes overblown, the China threat a dimension to this. To leave on that note then about what you asked. I think it's going to be a wait and see thing over the next couple of years where governments that are receiving this funding are going to wait and see how China is conducting itself, vice versa for China. It's going to see how these governments are accepting its investment and, and working with it. I would imagine it's going to be fairly steady state, even though it's got some setbacks. I wanted to expect major new developments. I think the massive projects have all been announced, and it's just going to be a matter of rolling these out more. I would say the number one risk to all of this, beyond the particular project risks we talked about, is China's own economy. So, you know, in our own analysis at the EIU of what lies ahead for the global economy, the top risk is that China could mismanage its wind down in economic growth. You know, officially, the the Chinese government doesn't acknowledge this. In terms of economic gravity, we don't see anything other than an outcome where China has to start slowing down within the next one to two years. So if China doesn't manage that wind down smoothly and it creates more of a bubble and then ultimately the economy starts crashing harder, that could have a ripple effect. And so that could be more than local intransigence to these projects, the biggest setback for the initiative would be to have China's economy suffer to such an, to such an extent that it has to pull back all its financing and, and the work it's doing abroad and you know maybe not the degree of all of it, but it would be significantly curtailed and, and could have a, a very negative ripple effect. I guess this is a continuing story for the Baron Road Initiative, and I'm sure I would love to get you back again to talk about all the other interesting issues that's going to come up with on this this really important initiative that will change the, the infrastructure and connectivity across Asia. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. The first one is, can you recommend anything and that can be in the form of a book, podcast, movie that you find interesting in your work or life recently? Sure. I was actually quite enthralled going through Francis Fukuyama's Political Order and Political Decay recently. And Francis Fukuyama is, I think, well known in Asia for having written The End of History. Wow, that goes back to early 90s. And he was pretty wrong on that because it was basically his estimate that the rise of globalism and the Western liberal economic political model 
would just become what everyone adopts. And that, that would be the future of mankind. And obviously, you know, everything from the rise of China to ISIS to even problems like what we see with Russia under Putin really throws a wrench into that thesis. But it was a well, you know, research book to, to give it some explanation. But then what he later did with this monumental piece, which is part of a two book series that tries to look at the whole origins of political economies in the world, is much more, I would say, thoroughly examined. And he, he looks at everything from the rise of China, going back some 2000 years, to what the American political economic model means. So it, it's, a, it's a really great uh, just treatment of, of what's going on and he, the book came out in 2014, but its lessons still very much apply. It's one of those, it, it, you know, it's a kind of a textbook. It, it would be the sort of thing I think a lot of first-year students might might read. But it's something that's so good in the way it, it just clearly illustrates how political structures differ and, and how they bring about different outcomes and how we can be deluded by our own rhetoric, whether that's what you hear in China or Washington or wherever, but that it can miss that, that sort of, you know, these more perlative descriptions that we like to give of our own political systems can can miss the point of what's really going on. So it, I think it's valuable because it shows some of the inherent issues as well as the strengths of various political systems. And it does it in a, a very nuanced way that you don't often find, where it really does look at China in a way that I thought was uh, very thorough and, and uh, insightful. And even books by like Kissinger or, or others who consider themselves China experts don't nearly get to the degree of depth that Fukuyama has achieved. Totally agree because I've read both volumes. I also have one recommendation to make, which is a book called Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century by Richard McGregor, because I think there is it's a very interesting dis discussion on how the rise of Japan and then followed by the rise of China and how it changes the geopolitical and even economics of the U.S. power in Asia Pacific. So that would be my recommendation. But I have one more question for you. How can my audience find you? Right. Well, I appreciate that. I'm very open to, to communications. The best way to reach me actually is on LinkedIn. And we also have a website at the Economist Corporate Network, which is just corporatenetwork.com. All one word, dot com. You can find me at Bernard Leung, my Twitter handle. Yes, I've gotten back that handle for a long, long time, and now I'm going to use it. And my website, BernardLeung.com. You can subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me, recommend us on Overcast with a star. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes to let us be discovered better. And of course, tweet to me your feedback. Rob, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Bernard.